She's, a, a <laughs> she's an amazing uh, partner. I love working with her all these years. She is, she's an amazing woman. When Lisa and I um, were in our 20s, we uh, were just married, actually married in our 20s. We got married young. We, um, we were asked to, after uh, college, we were asked to teach the junior high group here on Sunday mornings. That was our volunteer. So we were teaching the junior high group every Sunday morning, which we, we loved. Uh, and uh, one night, we gathered together with all the volunteer staff and all the, all the youth staff. And in the cottage next door, the youth pastor gathered us together. And we were having a meal together and just celebrating time together. At the end, the youth pastor asked us in a group, okay, let's just share, what are your thoughts about who God is? What are the things you learn about God? What's valuable to you about God? And so we were, went around in the circle. Everyone is sharing these, you know, these deep, emotive, kind of a long discussions of who God is and what he's done for them and who they think he is. It came to my, my turn, and, and I, I, I was thinking, I, I said this, God is love. And then right across from me was an older volunteer who looked at me and said, you spent four years studying the Bible at Biola, and that's all you got? <laughs> God is love. Sometimes the simplicity reveals depth and complexity. God is love sounds like an old 70s poster on the wall with the simplicity, but it, it is deeply profound. God is love opens us to thoughtful awareness of how we see God, how we see others, how we see his creation, and how we see ourselves. God is love. Now, Pastor Chad is leading all of us through this whole summer on 1 Corinthians 13. It's one of the most iconic chapters in the Bible. I remember the first time I heard about this chapter. Uh, I was in third grade, and my next, next door, our teacher told us as third graders we were going to memorize the whole love chapter. Now, you can imagine my horror as an eight-year-old thinking I had to memorize all these love stories, people holding hands and kissing. I was, just, I was kind of distraught about this love story, this love chapter. But as I read through it as a kid, I realized it was more about treating each other with patience and kindness and, and not being proud. The fact, the truth that God is love is what 1 Corinthians is all about. God is love is what leads us to love others. Love is his nature. And his love is the source of our capacity to love. This morning, I want us to spend more time developing a deeper understanding, a deeper awareness of his character of love. Our tendency to isolate and to elevate us and our group pulls us away from the wholeness, the flourishing of simply being in the presence of the love of God that he intended for us. So let's read through our passage in the NIV. We're reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So Pastor Chad asked us this morning to look at the end of verse 4. Love does not boast, it is not proud. Now the same verse in American Standard uses the word love does not brag, it is not arrogant. Both translations, you know, work well to say what God intended. When pride and arrogance is talked about in the Bible, it is described as destructive. It is an attitude that inflates self, and it puts self-importance above God and others. This is demonstrated, Proverbs 11:2. When arrogance comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Now, we see throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians, we see this, this struggle with arrogance with the people in the Corinthians. Earlier portions of this book reveal this. If we start in chapter 1 and 3, we see people having their, they're proud of their allegiance to different disciples, different apostles, which is creating a division in the church. In chapter 4, they're very critical of Paul. They boasted of their intolerance for immorality within the church in chapter 5. In chapter 6, they're suing each other. These and other arrogant actions are finally kind of corrected in chapter 13. According to verse 4, real love does not boast. There is no arrogance in love. The reason that love does not boast is simple. Love is focused on the loved one, not on ourselves. Love turns our perspective outward. When we live within the love of God, we seek the thriving of others, focus on their needs, and offer to help them without thought of repayment or any kind of thing to get back from us. This is what it means God is love. God is love is the foundation of this whole chapter. It's the polar opposite of our trait of arrogance. When we act with arrogance, when we break into bragging, we are pulling out of the love of God and elevating ourselves above others and above the way that God actually made us. We pull away from God when we lead into arrogance. What is arrogance? The definition of arrogance is when we believe we are better than others and suppose we know more than everyone else. Or when we believe we are capable of something we simply are not. Arrogance is an exaggerated perception of ourselves, our family, our people. It's an assumption we have of being superior or of wanting to be seen as better than someone else. Arrogance leads toward patronizing or speaking or behaving as if we're more intelligent with others. Boasting and arrogance are assuming we cannot learn from someone who's different from us. Arrogance is not confidence. Arrogance is not recognizing we have skills or capacities more than someone else. My father's a civil engineer, and it's not arrogant for him to say he knows how to build a bridge more than I do. <laughs> confidence and being aware of our skills is a good thing. 
It's arrogant when we place a value or when we create a ladder of importance on ourselves or our group based on our skills, our education, our net worth, or our heritage. We will look around the room and we see where we fit in the levels of importance based on others. I belong to that group. That's who I am. I don't belong to that group because they simply don't quite level up. We all do this to some level. We align ourselves with those with power and influence because we belong. And we avoid the vulnerable, the fringe, the immigrant, because we see ourselves as different, above them in some way. Arrogance sees us above others and puts a protective wall around us. Love seeks the vulnerable. Love always stoops. Love seeks our identity from how God sees us and, and then uses our skills and our capacities with, with humility in loving others, serving others, lifting others up so they can see who they are in God's image and see them as God sees them. Arrogance is kind of having a consumer mentality. When we look at others as a means to our gain, when we look at others as assets or, or liabilities, Simply put, love is not boastful or arrogant because love looks at someone in the eyes and sees them as the image of God. Arrogance is revealed in simple everyday events. Let's think through what are examples of arrogance in our lives. How do we boast or express arrogance in our, in our personal life? when we compare ourselves with others throughout the day. For some, it's our clothes. For others, it's what we drive or how we drive, how witty we are, or our position at work. Do we lie out of embarrassment to make us not look inferior? This is just a, a subtle arrogance. When we see others in the grocery line ahead of us or in the car passing us on the highway or the loud person in the coffee shop, do we see them as made in the image of God and dearly loved by God? How we instinctively respond to others reflect how we perceive ourselves. In our, in our family life, this starts with those we live with, but also extends out to our extended family. Arrogance means we don't admit our mistakes to our spouse or our children or our cousins. Love is quick to admit when we're wrong, when we have made a mistake. Arrogance leads us to find fault with our family, in fact, fault with our, our spouse. That's, that's arrogance. Also in our work or our school or community, when we're talking with someone and we're looking around the room for someone else to talk to, that's a little bit of arrogance. Looking people in the eye is a way of telling them that we care, that we love them. Arrogance leads us to make hasty decisions at work because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. Love leads us to elevate the team, our classmates, our teammate. In our community, how do we look at the vulnerable, the immigrant? Do we see them made in the image of God? 
and having inherent value because they are loved by God? Or do we isolate ourselves from them? Arrogance leads us to feeling threatened by others. God is love, and love is not boasting, it's not arrogance. We, lo- we know what love is not. I want us to dig now into the source of love. I want us to pull away and look at who is love. How is that a model for us? How do we see what love is? So in, in order to better understand love, I want us to look at God, and I want to look What does it mean that God is love? Uh, When when COVID began, God blessed Lisa and me and allowed us to stay in a guest house of a friend. We'd come back here. I had some heart surgery, so I had to recover. And we're here for a couple of years by God's grace. During that time, you know, I loved to go on these long runs or hikes in Mount Diablo. It was just a time of, of, of... resource healing and, and, and just being the presence of, of God's created world. And in the midst of that chaos, you know, remember the early parts of COVID, how there was chaos and isolation and a lot of concern and fear. One verse, God gave me a verse early on. And that verse became a constant phrase. It became a hymn to me that I would repeat over and over and over. I would spend hours on my walks just meditating on this one verse. Exodus 34, 6. This is God talking about himself. God says, Yahweh, Yahweh is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger with overwhelming loyal love and truth. Even now, I'll wake up in the middle of the night with a mind racing I'll meditate on this verse. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger with overwhelming loyal love and truth. This, this verse has become a, a physical, a visceral, emotive response to me. God is loyal love. This is who God is. Loyal love is the fulcrum of this verse. It it carries the weight. It balances out compassion and gracious with truth. His compassion and patience and truth center on his overwhelming loyal love. It's revealing to us that this verse, Exodus 34, 6, is the most common quoted Old Testament verse by all the other biblical authors. Almost 30 times we see, it quote, we see it quoted throughout Scripture. We see the Bible that says over and over, God is compassionate. God is gracious. He's filled with overwhelming love. This is the most common description of God in Scripture. The prophets obsess over the compassionate and gracious love of God. They lean into it. They yearn for it. They recognize it. If this is their obsession, I want it to be my obsession. Now, this verse is actually very significant because of the context in which it's in. Just a couple chapters before in Exodus 32, we have the story of the golden calf. 
You know that story? Moses is coming down from the mountain after receiving the tablets that God had written with his finger. And he gets to the bottom of the mountain and he sees this chaos where the people of, of Israel had forgotten God. One of the ultimate sins of arrogance to believe that God can forget us. They take their jewelry and their gold and they made a calf and they danced and they worshiped this calf. The smell of this chaos and this wickedness and the nose of Moses overwhelmed him and he leaned into punishment of his people. Imagine the high mountain high of coming on the mountain, being with God and coming down and seeing this chaos. Moses is sitting in the embers of this chaos. He's, he's distraught with what he has seen and come through. It's at this moment, at this lowness of his life, Moses calls out to God, God, tell me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. He wants to see his glory. He needs a reminder of who God is. So God, if you remember this in 33, God takes Moses and puts him in a cleft of a rock, puts his hand before him and passes by to reveal his glory. And then, out of this ugly, sinful, degenerate activity of the people of Israel, how does God reveal himself? After he passes by, Yahweh, God, says to Moses, Exodus 34, 6. The first thing he says to Moses after the sin of his people is, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, with overwhelming loyal love and truth. Imagine after the covenant was broken, after, immediately after the people's sin is obvious, what is God's first Revelation, his first self-revelation of himself is that he is a loyal, loving God. Now, in Hebrew, this word loyal love is chesed. That's the Hebrew term. Now, this Hebrew word can be a type of affection you have for someone, but more often it's much more complex than simply affection. Chesed has been translated into English several ways throughout the Old Testament, including mercy, loving kindness, unfailing love, and steadfast love. All of these are the opposite of arrogance. I want us to spend the next few moments looking at what is chesed. If we understand when God says he is loyal love, he is chesed, what does that mean? How is that used in the Hebrew scriptures so we have a better understanding of who God is and how he looks at us? First, kesed seeks the flourishing of others. This word kesed means we seek the flourishing of others. It combines the qualities of love and generosity and enduring commitment all into one. It's a loyal commitment to be generous with someone, to pursue shalom, to seek wholeness for others. Kekesa describes a promise-keeping loyalty motivated by a deep personal care that God has or we have. Kesed is a type of love you can depend on. Affections can come and go, but what we want really is loyal affection, right? Not driven by a strict or obligation, but by a deep compassion. 
when we treat others as the member of our family and we work toward their well-being or their health or their flourishing, that's an act of chesed. The act itself is not chesed, but it's the posture of love that leads to acts of goodness and compassion. That is chesed. That is God is love. There's a woman that, that Lisa and I know quite well. Her name is, we call her Anis. Anis. We've known her for a long time. And Anis has been a, um, a woman who is often pushed against us in our ministry where we work. She's married to a man who is a follower of, of Jesus, and yet she is a daughter of a commander in the rebel army and just refuses to talk to us. Just for many years avoided us. But we kept pursuing her and showing her. We promised her that we would come to her village if she'd open the door to us and bring these medical clinics in. We wanted to show her who God was through our love that we had for her and her people. Finally, Anise opened up her community, and we drove. We had a team of us doctors and members and volunteers and nurses and pharmacists, and we drove five hours up this coastal road, and we spent all day in this village of Anise as her family. And they noticed something different. Our doctors actually looked them in the eye. We actually listened to everyone share their struggles, and we prayed over every single person in every village who came to us. We gave her medication that wasn't expired. They told us that. We know you love us because your medication is not expired. We cared for their people. We loved them, and we followed through with this promise. It was actually the next day afterwards, Anis said to me, I now know that you love us. I now know that you love me. And she started into a study of God's word together. That's Kesed. Loving, following up a promise and showing the tangible love of God. This is very similar in the story of Ruth. Ruth, in the Old Testament, she was a foreigner She's married to an Israelite man, right? Tragedy strikes, and her husband and her father-in-law and her brother-in-law all die. So Ruth goes to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, I want to follow you, and I promise to be with you. Naomi tells Ruth to go back to her own people, but instead Ruth promises to Naomi to stay by her side. She promises to take care of her older mother-in-law. Now, as other people back in Israel, they noticed how Ruth loved, could have left on her own, but loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, and cared for her and searched for food for her. They say in Ruth 3.10, the people around her say what Ruth is doing is an act of chesed. It's an act of following through with a promise with compassion and love. She is simply, it's her character to be a generous and loving person who keeps a word. Ruth's actions reveal she's anything but arrogant. This is Kesed. Ruth is an inspiring model for us, but the one who shows Kesed more than anyone else is God our Father. A good example, again, is Jacob. You know, Jacob, the younger twin, 
he was a deceiver, a fraud, a manipulator of people, his own family, tricked his own brother. Despite this, God chose Jacob to be based on the promises he made to the family before. And God repeats this promise he made to Abraham, that he would have a huge family, and God would restore blessing through Jacob. Imagine this, 20 years after Jacob deceives his father, and many, many others, Jacob comes humbly before God and says to God in Genesis 32, I am not worthy of all the chesed you have shown me. He is right. He's not. And now are we. But God's loyal love was never about Jacob in the first place. His love is a display of God's loyalty to his promise. This loyal love is not related to our worth or the worth of anyone else. God's loyal love is completely based on his character, on who he is. God is loyal love. Chesed seeks the flourishing of others, and also Chesed activates compassion. Compassion springs from love. It's one way God expresses his love. He is a compassionate God who cares deeply and emotionally about us. The compassion of God reveals his nurturing image. There's a story in 1 Kings 3 of, of uh, two women that's the first time to show the wisdom of Solomon. Maybe you know the story. These two mothers were sleeping at night. One mother baby dies. And so the other mother finds this and switches the babies. Of course, the next morning, the mother knows her child is not the one who's dead next to her, but the one with this other woman. They fight, and they come before Solomon with this dilemma. In his true wisdom, King Solomon asks for a sword and commands the babies be split into two. So each would have a part. The true mother responds with a deep emotion. We read in 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings 3, the woman whose son was alive spoke to the king because she felt great compassion for her son. My Lord, give her the living baby, but please don't have him killed. This is how the, the king knows who the true mother is. This deep emotion based on her passion for her own child. It's a gut-wrenching feeling of emotion. And she would do anything to save her baby. This is the baby of her womb. Think about this. This is the exact same compassion that God has for us. God looks at us as that child and has emotive compassion on us. Compassion is to share someone else's passion. It's to feel something deeply within our core, to have this empathy for one another. This is how God responds to people with pain in Scripture. It's not a, a cerebral response. It's a deep emotional response to pain. God is depicted as having, as an emotional God in this verse. Other uses of compassion in the Bible are, are stirrings of the inner being or the emotion of pity. It's used in the contrast to the emotion of anger. So having compassion means letting go of our anger. Often the word compassion revealed God's response when he hears people crying out. Even if we turn away from him, 
Even if we are hurting, even if we've ignored him or caused him grief, if we cry out to him, he will respond with compassion and love. That's his character. That's his nature. He is deeply and emotionally connected to us. He is responsive. God feels love for all of the world, and God acts from love. Now, in, my, in my faith, growing up well, I have gained a, a knowledge to know that God loves me. But I often have difficulty feeling that God loves me. I'm driven by a sense of what's right and what's wrong, and, and I lean into activity that's based on this knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. And I know intellectually that God knows me. And I know intellectually he loves you. And I know intellectually he loves all of his creation. But part of my growth the last few years is I'm trying to lean into what does it mean that God has feelings of love. And I try to sit in that truth that he feels love. It's like two close friends have a deep love for each other or a parent has a deep love for their child. What does it feel like that God loves you, that he feels love for you? Actually, I, I want you to just take a few minutes and think about that. God loves you. He feels deeply for you. He is bonded with you. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, with overwhelming loyal love and truth. I want us to actually sit and think for a minute. What is our response to God's loyal love? What's your intellectual response? What do you know about God's love that influences you? What truth do you lean on? Think about that. Write it down. What is your emotive response? What emotions are stirred up in you when you think about God loves me? Can you put a label to the emotion that you feel when you respond to this? Meditate on what emotions do you feel when you know that God loves you? What is your physical response? I always feel things in my gut. I'm a gut person. When I feel joy or sorrow, I, I feel it deep in my gut. Do you have a, a physical response to this truth? Is there a, a physical response to the reality that you know and feel the love of God? Is there something physical? Think about that for a moment.
Chesed seeks the flourishing of others. Chesed activates compassion. And Chesed is it's a parental love. And Isaiah 49 is where Isaiah is prophesying amid Israel's suffering and, and oppression. God promises that he will bring comfort to his people and will bring love and compassion on them. But the people are saying, absolutely not. No, God has forgotten us. This is where God is saying in, in Isaiah 49, 15, I have not forgotten. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God is so bonded to his people as a woman who nurses their own child. This parental picture of God is strong in Jeremiah 31, where God is calling Israel Ephraim. It says in Jeremiah 31, Isn't Ephraim a precious son to me, a delightful child? Whenever I speak against him, I certainly still think about him. Therefore, my inner being yearns for him. I will truly have compassion on him. This is the Lord's declaration. His overwhelming loyal love and compassion draws God intimately close to us. His response to us is his emotional response to a child. He gets down on his knee and he looks us in the eye and he tells us, I love you. He yearns for us. Chesed also generates forgiveness. Throughout the story of the Bible, humans continually show faithless and selfish and how self-sabotaging they are. But the Bible makes it clear how enduring God's loyal love is for us. His consistent character of compassion and loyal love brings forgiveness. When we fail, when we sin against God, we can depend on his consistent character of loyal love and compassion. Psalm 51 is a good example of God's loyal and compassionate love. David has just committed adultery. He covered up his adultery by killing the husband of the woman and used his army to cover up his sin. The prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him. And David acknowledges his sin. He says in Psalm 51, 51, Be gracious to me, God according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. David uses three of the characteristics of God we see in Exodus 34. David is using the golden calf story about himself. He sees his horrible sin, yet he calls upon the compassionate, gracious loving character of God and says, God, you will forgive me because of who you are. I confess. Please forgive. It's based on the nature of God, not the moral character of David, does David lean wholly on the hope of God for forgiveness. According to God's faithful and loyal love and according to his abundant compassion, not based on the skill of David's prayer, or the production of the previous things he's done in life, or the position as king did David confess. He didn't come and say, I am the king, so you will forgive me. 
It's based on the nature of God. God's love is based on this, why David asked for forgiveness. Next, we see that Kessid is fully known in Jesus. God continues to show his loyal and abundant love to Israel. And because through them, now his loyal love is spent throughout, through all the nations of the world. And this leads us to who Jesus is. Jesus comes into the midst of this chaos and is fully the presence of chesed, fully the presence of love. So after centuries of Israel ignoring the presence and the power and love of God and thousands of years of other nations snubbing God, God still keeps his promise by becoming human and binding himself to us. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And his life and death and resurrection opens a new present and a new future for all of us and all of his creation. Simply because this is who God is. He came for this one reason, because he's a compassionate and gracious God. And eternally, he keeps his promise. This is chesed. We know Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. In John 11, we see the story of Jesus waiting to go to, to comfort Martha and Mary and to bring healing to Lazarus. It's a very moving story of pain and the loss. Jesus knew he was sick, but he waited two more days to visit because he wanted to bring glory to who God is. He had a purpose in waiting, yet that does not diminish the pain that Lazarus' death caused. In the midst of this, we read my, actually my favorite memory verse as a child was John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But what do we learn about Jesus in his simple two words? Jesus felt the pain of Lazarus' death, and he wept. As is his father, Jesus is an emotional being. He is love, and his love for Lazarus allowed him to weep. Okay, where does this take us? Jesus is fully in the pain with us. When we're in pain, Jesus doesn't just know that we are in pain. He's actually feeling, in a motive way, the pain with us. He's not separate. He's here. Our pain is his pain because he loves us so intimately, like a, a parent feels the deep pain of their child. He feels our pain. When we experience the purity and beauty of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to imagine why and how we can express back to God and to others around us this love. What does it mean to say God is overflowing with loyal love. This is Kassid. It means seeking the flourishing of others. It means activating compassion in others. It means having a parental love for others. It means generating forgiveness to others. It means that Jesus is the full expression of Kassid. Jesus is the full expression of love. And so that requires a response from us. Remember in the Passion Week, when Jesus is coming toward his death, 
He's in the temple, and the very last time he's speaking in the temple, he's being surrounded by the Pharisees and Sadducees who are trying to trick him. So they ask him a question. They ask them a question. I'll read it in Matthew 22. This is, well, this is the question they ask was, what is the greatest commandment? And they're trying to trick him. But Jesus, seeing that trick, goes to the deeper issue. He says in Matthew 22, he said to them, this is the answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So what is our response to God is love? Our response is to love God wholly, immensely, completely. And to love others wholly, immensely, and completely. This is our response. There's an event that happened um, a, a few years ago. And I don't often tell this, this story, but there was a wedding I was invited to go to. It was in a distant village, about a, a, a two-hour boat ride across this large lake. So I was, I was invited to this wedding, and I was with about 20 of students that I was teaching on the university, and then some of their uncles and leaders. And we got on this long canoe-type boat, set four people across, and maybe 50, 60 feet long. And the gunwales are only an inch or two above the, above the lake. Any kind of wave would have knocked us all over. So we sat there for about two hours just putzing along this lake, going through beautiful water lilies, and fishermen were living in the middle of this lake, and it was just a two-hour ride across. We landed on the other side, and there was these planks we had to walk across because there was a muddy swamp on the far side. And, and I was kind of surprised. I should have expected it, but there was a man standing there with a big gun. I don't know gun, sorry, but it was big. <laughs> and I started wondering, okay, where am I going? And it ended up this wedding was in the middle of a rebel camp. This, we lived for years in kind of this rebel civil war going on, and this wedding was in the midst of a, of a rebel camp, and they didn't tell me. But these students come up to me and says, don't worry, don't worry, God is strong, God is strong, God is good. And I said, yeah, that, I'm glad you're saying this, but maybe I should be worried if you're saying I shouldn't be worried. Within a few minutes, literally we had 100 men come down from the hills and they were all carrying guns. And the first time I ever saw an RPG in my life was right there. Because they thought this white guy coming to this village, I must be CIA, I must be some kind of foreign operative. <laughs> they had no idea. But what was beautiful was there's uncle. He stood up. There's no lectures in this town, so he told everyone to sit down. He spent about 20 minutes just telling them how much this man came because he loves us. And he started telling his stories of how these students who had no food and we fed them on campus. He told them how we were helping these students get scholarships and how we had started these farms and started these feeding programs. And all he basically told them was the things we showed love to their own people. Once they knew that I loved them and their people, all the guns went down. I actually have videos. They wanted me to videotape them. I've never shown it in public. But these rebels, when they knew that they were loved, 
And they knew that I love them through the, I told them through the power of God, I bring his love to you. The doors were open. This is chesed. It's being the presence and the love of Jesus. Among those who are very different from me, whom I normally would be afraid of, but it was the power of God's love allowed his message to be shared that day. We are told to love and bless and care for our enemies. And this goes against all we see around us. We can only love others through the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot read the life of Jesus and not be deeply moved by the words of Jesus to love others as we are loved. There's, there's a friend of mine, Alim, and he and I for years have been in study together and and there was a time where we went through the commands of Jesus. There's seven that we focused on, but we went through all these different commands. There's one that was very difficult for him, was to love your enemy. See, he, as a child, his father had left his mother and married a second wife, which was okay in this community. But it was painful for young Alim, who was only nine years old, and now became taking care of his mother and his, his younger siblings. For 10 years, he was responsible for his family, while his father lived only a village away, completely ignored him. Alim had a, a, a deep hatred for his father. So we're going through the commands of Jesus, and Jesus tells Alim to love your enemies. He said to me, all these commands are a challenge, but this is one that's impossible. I cannot love my father. I cannot forgive him. But he says, but by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to try. As is the culture of this community, a way you show reconciliation was to show, to create a large village feast. Aline went home, and he used every penny he had and borrowed from distant relatives and held a feast for the whole village, for all the clan. He stood up in front of everyone and had his father stand up, and he publicly confessed his anger to the village about his dad. And he asked his dad's forgiveness. He's telling me this story, and he is just weeping. He says it's only by the power of the Spirit could he forgive his father in public and not hold any revenge against him. But you know what that did? He became a witness to his own community that he had never could have been able before. He showed the character of love that they have never seen before. He became a powerful witness to his community and his clan, whom he prayed for for years for this opportunity. And God used this, this humility of forgiveness. Chesed requires a response. God is love requires a response. God is love, and only because of this truth are we fully able and deeply able to love each other. Love those who are different from us. Love those who have different ideas than us. Love those who are vulnerable, weak, the outcast. I'm going to end. I'm going to pray a blessing over us. I'm going to read Ephesians 3. 
And we'll close with this blessing. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through the Spirit, that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness and fullness of God.